Let's stand together tonight and we're going to read Psalm 52. It's just nine verses. And I want to read them to you together and then we'll get into the message. It says, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischief. So you get the idea right away that when he says, O mighty man, he's being sarcastic. He's taking a shot, really. And he says, Your tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Selah. Again, we don't know what that word entirely means, Selah. Many either think it's a rest in the, the music that's being played, or it's a pause saying, hey, think about that. And he says in verse 4, Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Selah. It's kind of like, think about that. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusteth in the abundance of his riches and strengtheneth himself in his wickedness. He says, everybody's going to look at you and laugh. Look at, it, look at this guy. This is the guy over here that trusted in his riches and not in God. He goes in verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I'll praise thee forever, because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. I want to preach to you tonight on, on full display. That's the title of my message, on full display. David put some things out there on full display for everybody to see. And we'll pay attention to him tonight. Heavenly Father, I do pray again that you would be praised, that you would be magnified, and help us to learn through your word. We thank you that you've given us the word, you've preserved it, you've put it in our hands so that we could learn. And I pray that we would do that tonight, even from this maybe a little bit of obscure text. And I pray that you'd help us, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, it's not been uncommon for musicians over the years to write songs about their conflict with other people. Uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney traded shots through songs. Um, some of you like Sweet Home Alabama. Leonard Skinner took a shot at uh, Neil Young. You say, why are you talking about these carnal things? Because you're a carnal. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Taylor Swift writes all songs about her breakups all the time. Like we care. I'm certainly not endorsing these musicians or their songs. I'm just saying it's not, it's not untypical that somebody would take a shot at somebody in a song that they produce. Well, apparently David did that too. This psalm is written and taken a, really a shot at a specific person. If you look at the header, we've, we've seen this in last week, there was a header that gave us the context of the psalm. Remember, it was Psalm 51 is based on his failure with Bathsheba. Look, look at the header if you have one in your Bible, which I would imagine most of you do. It says, to the chief musician, Maskeel. That, that's, that word means it's a psalm of instruction. He says this, a psalm of David when Dog, the Edomite, came and told Saul and said unto him, David is come to the house of Ahimelech. So it's giving us the context of why David was writing what he was writing. So apparently when he says, why boastest thou, thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? We know who he's talking about. He's talking about Dog, the Edomite. 
Well, you say, well, what, what, what exactly is that? Well, let me just go with you about the narrative. We want to put things in its historical context, its grammatical context. We want to pay attention to those things. Remember, that's what we want to do with the Word of God. We want to observe it. We want to properly interpret it. And then we want to practically apply it. That's, that's what you want to do when you handle the Scriptures. And so here we, we, we just kind of go over that context. Remember that Saul, the king, the king of Israel, Saul, had made multiple attempts to kill David. And so David did not want to engage Saul. He, did, he didn't want to get into it with him. It was, after all, his father-in-law. He also was the king of Israel. And so he felt like, hey, I don't really want to put my hand toward, toward the, the Lord's anointed. And so if you remember, there was a season where David fled to the land of the Philistines. Now, why did he do that? We, we could go over whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but that's what David did because he understood that Saul was a little bit intimidated by the Philistines. And he knew that if I go into the land of the Philistines and I go there, Saul has a long arm of reach, but he's not going to reach into their territory. He's not going to do that. And so David fled to, to that area. Now, on his way out of town, he stopped by the tabernacle and spoke to a priest named Ahimelech. If you remember this particular story, he, he came to Ahimelech and he said, listen, I, I need some sustenance. Do you have any food to give me? And Ahimelech was a little hesitant because he knew what was going on between Saul and David. And, and he was a little hesitant. And he said, all I have is the table of the bread of the table of showbread. And David said, that'll do. Give it to me. And if you remember, he, he took that. Now, again, we could get into that. Jesus made reference to that even in the New Testament. Should David have done that? Should Ahimelech done that? That's kind of a sermon and a topic for another day. But that, that's what happened. And he also said, hey, I need some weapons. What do you got around here? And he said, well, I've got the sword of Goliath. And apparently they had kind of put it on display I mean, that was a pretty big deal in their nation. This little shepherd boy took out a nine-foot-nine ogre of a man, and, and, and they, they kind of would have had that on display, like, hey, like a museum, hey, check this out. And David said, hey, I, I think I'll take that. I'm not a little scrawny teenager anymore. I can handle that. Let, let me have that. I need a weapon. And so he took that weapon. Now, lurking around the corner when all this was happening was an Edomite. If you know anything about the Edomites, they were not necessarily friends uh, of the people of, of Israel. They, really, the Edom kind of symbolizes the flesh. And again, that's a sermon for another day. But I, I just every time I read that story, I just kind of see this beady-eyed little man kind of around the corner and Dog the Edomite. And he's eavesdropping on what's going on. And he sees this as an opportunity to, to try and get ahead in life. And so David notices Dog. He, he recognizes that he was there. But David was so busy trying to save his own skin that he wasn't worried about thinking about Dog. And so this man, this Edomite, goes to Saul and he panders to Saul's paranoia. Understand that, that Saul would have been labeled in, in the context of our culture. Saul, we could definitely call him bipolar. He was definitely very paranoid. Uh, he was jealous of David. He, he, he had a lot going on in his life. And, and Dog used that to his advantage. In fact, you see in verse 7, it says, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. It kind of indicates that what Dog was doing is he was using this situation to gain favor with the king, and that was either going to lead to immediate wealth or eventual wealth in his life. And so he used that to his advantage. So he just kind of whispers in Saul's ear, Hey, you know, Ahimelech, he helped David out. He gave him some food. He gave him weapons. You know, he just is kind of planting that seed into his paranoia. 
And what happens is Saul, in a rage, goes down and he says to, to uh, his, his uh, army, his guards, he says, I want you to kill Ahimelech and his priests. And they said, we're not doing that. We're not putting our hand to, on God's anointed. We're not, we're not putting on the priest. And Dog steps forward and says, I'll do it. And he literally, according to the Bible, he slays 85 priests. He kills them right there, including Ahimelech. That's the historical context of this psalm. And it's been put on full display for us to see and for us to observe some things tonight. And I want you to see, David just puts it out there and he tells us exactly how he feels. You ever done that with somebody? I mean, boy, they're, they're just worked up and they, they're speaking their mind and, and you might sarcastically say to them, well, well, tell us what you think. David told us what he thought. And it was on full display. He did not hide it. He put it right out there, and I want you to see it tonight. Two items on full display in this psalm, and I think you'll be interested in it. Number one, contempt for the wicked is on full display. I mean, he does not hold back at all what he thinks about this guy. David's contempt is seen immediately. He sarcastically calls him, oh, mighty man. And to me, that was very derisive. It was very sarcastic in the way he said it. Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, oh, mighty man? To me, it's like he's calling him Mr. Big Shot, tough guy. I mean, that's kind of what he's doing. I mean, basically he's saying, how mighty are you really? I mean, he says, you, you went in, Mr. Tough Guy, and you killed 85 priests. These priests weren't trained for battle. They weren't warriors. They, were, they weren't troops in an army. These were, these were ministers that were just doing their job. These were not, not hardened soldiers. And you went in and, and under the protection of King Saul, you, just, you, you slayed them right in front of him. Oh, oh, mighty man, Mr. Tough Guy. I can kind of see David with a chip on his shoulder saying, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? I mean, David knew a thing or two about, about whipping some people. We already talked about him whipping Goliath, one of the biggest, I mean, we still talk about David and Goliath situations. I mean, David took him out, cut his head off, came and flopped it in at the feet of Saul. But we know that David, I mean, in order to marry uh, Saul's daughter, I mean, he killed, what is it, a thousand Philistines? I mean, he, he knew a thing or two about fighting. And I can see him saying, hey, Mr. Tough Guy, you're going picking on these priests, picking on these guys that are not trained to battle? I mean, who, who are you? And, and he just immediately shows his contempt for them. In verse 2, he says, Your tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. He says, your, your words, yes, they might have had a measure of truth, but this is what he criticizes them for. He says, but you used your words to cause harm. And he shows his contempt for that. Hey, that just paused right there, and, and this is a great lesson, a great reminder for us that words are, are to be used for positive use, not for abuse. You understand, our ability to communicate like we're doing tonight differentiates us from the animal kingdom. I want to just give it this opportunity again for me to say, we are not higher evolved animals. Now, I understand animals communicate. I know a dolphin can and, you, and, and say things to people. I know Lassie told us that Timmy is in the well. I, I get all of that kind of stuff. And, and we know that, that animals can communicate, but they don't use words like we use words. God has given mankind the ability to speak with words 
And we have been saved and sanctified so that we can use our words not to abuse people and tear people down, but to, to use them to, to build. That's why he says a, a razor, you're like a razor, you're cutting down. Well, listen, a razor should be used to shave, not slash. It's just like a hammer. A hammer should be used to build. You, you can use a hammer to murder somebody. You can use a hammer to hurt somebody. But a hammer is, it should be designed to, to build, not break. I mean, think about it tonight. Who can measure the anguish and pain that was caused or has been caused by a wicked tongue? Just a few words whispered in the, in the ear of a paranoia king caused 85 people to lose their life. And our words have consequence. We ought to remember that the next time we sit down to fire off an email. We ought to remember that the next time we want to post something on Twitter. We ought to remember these things because our Lord, Jesus, He warned us that every idle word that men shall speak shall give an account thereof at the day of judgment. And man, if that's true of our idle words, how much more so is that true of our deliberately malicious words? See, I... The Bible's very clear that God holds us responsible for our words. I think the Bible's clear that He even holds us responsible for our tone. And I mean, I stand guilty of that. We, we need to be reminded of that. Verse 3, he says, Thou lovest evil more than good. Now, I'll tell you right now, I think that that's a hard verse for some of us to swallow. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's hard for people who are, are good-willed people to believe that there are some people out there that actually just love wickedness. Are y'all tracking with me tonight? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you tend to tell the truth all the time, you tend to have a, a, a hard time believing that somebody would just absolutely make something up. But the truth of the matter is, is there are some people who love to lie. They like to lie. They like to do evil. They enjoy it. It's fun to them. They delight in it. And, and Saul, uh, and excuse me, David calls him out on that. He says, listen, I, I, I have contempt for you. And, and that's why he says in verse 1, not only did you do wrong, you boasted in doing wrong. And he shows his contempt for it. It's on full display. He has zero tolerance and appreciation for this. In fact, notice in verse 5, David is absolutely rooting for his ruin. He says, God is going to destroy you forever. He's going to take you away, pluck you out of your dwelling place, root you out of the land. And, and, and he, he's excited about it. <laughs> he says, man, God's going to pound you down, pluck you out, pull you up. It's like one preacher preached a message entitled it, Every Dog Has His Day. David says, you're going to get yours. And I'm going to be glad about it. Now, does that shock any of you? Did you understand what I was talking about, about an unusual psalm? I mean, he's calling this guy out by name. I mean, this was probably sung in worship services. Does that seem strange to you? I mean, it seems different to me. That they're like, yeah, Doge is a bad man. We don't like him. Let's sing it, choir. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. Now, in our day, we, we wouldn't do that. That's just kind of against the grain of our Christianity because we live on this side of Calvary. And, and, and we just kind of aren't wired that way, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We tend to look at people in the light of Calvary. We would say, man, somebody like Doug needs to be saved. I hope they get saved. I hope God shows mercy on them. 
We don't look at them in, in, in what Stephen sang about tonight in judgment and the great white throne. We have a tendency not to look at people that way. And, and, and again, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. We have a tendency to play, pray for forgiveness on people, not vengeance on people. But do you, you do understand that we want the Bible to shape our thinking. And in some way, we see in, 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 the, in the pages of Scripture, and it's not just an Old Testament thing. In, in some cases, I mean... Paul said, I, I pray that the recompense of, of certain people's reward would be upon them for the trouble that they have caused me in my ministry. So that, that the kind of attitude still does exist even under what we call grace in the New Testament. And David basically saying, I have contempt. I absolutely have contempt for the wickedness of this man. Well, I'll tell you right now, I think we ought to have grace. I think we ought to pray for the salvation of people. I think we ought to pray for, for God's forgiveness on people. We saw that on Wednesday night. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But at the same time, we need to have righteous people that stand up and say, you know what? I have contempt for what is wrong. I'm angered by what is wrong. I don't have any tolerance for this wickedness that I see. In fact, he says there in, in verse uh, uh, 6, he says, the righteous shall also see and fear and shall laugh at him. It's as if he is saying, let's, let's identify it for what it is. I, I just kind of put it in my Bible, it's, it, it, in verse 6, it's kind of like a dunce cap. You remember the, old, the, the dunce cap? And I'm not saying you ought to do that to people, but I'm, I'm just saying, you remember years ago in like the 16th century or whatever, if somebody wasn't paying attention to their studies, they'd put that conical hat on them and stick them in the corner, and everybody say, look at the dunce. Look at the guy that's not learning. Look at the guy that's not doing what he's supposed to do. Look at him. And it's as if David is saying, look at this wicked man. Expose his wickedness. See the folly of his ways. And he shows his contempt to him. What's sad is though in verse 7 we see this. Or in verse 6 again, he says, they shall fear and laugh at him. What's sad to me is it's the righteous who often learn from, from judgment of the wicked, not the wicked themselves. Alexander McLaren said this, but this is the tragedy of life. That its teachings are prized most by the, those who have already learned them. And those who need them most consider them the least. I think that that's sad, but it's so often true. You know, I've learned in pastoral ministry, I've learned that a lot of times people that, that need counseling do not benefit from counseling. And people who, who don't need counseling are the ones that listen to counsel. And that's why they're in the situations that they're in. I'm not saying that sometimes we have problems in life and we just need help, but I, I'm just simply saying a lot of times people aren't in the position that they're in because they actually listen and pay attention to stuff. And unfortunately, sometimes God judges the wicked over and over again, and they don't learn, but the righteous look at it and say, hey, hello, I want to learn from that. It's kind of like raising kids. You know, at our house, if my kids ever heard the words, go to my room, they knew that judgment was about to be executed. And, and we, we always wanted to be considerate of the child, and so we would go in and have them sit on the bed. That was usually so I could calm down. You don't want to discipline a child in anger. Yeah? And that was so that they could think about what, what was going on. And so then I would go in there and close the door. We'd have a conversation. We would administer the proper uh, uh, punishment. But the truth is, is even though I was trying to be appropriate to that child and consider that child's feelings, you don't think that the other children in my home couldn't hear whack, 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 wah, wah, wah? You, you don't think there were big eyeballs going, Ooh. I mean, I've heard one of my children before going, why don't they just learn? Why won't they just listen to dad? 
What's their deal? You, you, you understand? And, and a lot of times, it's the wicked, that God's, God's spanking on them, and, and they're not listening. But he says, well, the righteous, we're going to pay attention, we're going to listen. And at the end of verse 6, we see in the end, the righteous are going to have the last laugh. You remember that statement? He who laughs last, laughs best. Or somebody else adjusted and said, he who laughs last, thinks slowest. If you're going, I don't get it. Yeah, we're talking about you. <laughs> but that's kind of what he's saying. We're going, we're going to have the last laugh when it, when it comes through at the end. And again, my point is here tonight, it is abundantly clear in this passage that David has contempt. That word contempt means the feeling that this person deserves scorn. And we could open up a can of worms tonight and talk about some of the things that we ought to have contempt for or we do have contempt for in this world. I don't think that that's very necessary tonight. I'm just simply saying it's interesting to me that in this psalm, David puts his contempt on full display. I mean, he's like not holding back at all. And, and apparently God saw fit to put that in Scripture. I want you to also see this, though. I always love to end on a good note. I like, I like uh, songs that are in a major key better than in a minor key. And maybe the first part of the song, kind of like the song Stephen sang tonight, starts off in a minor key and maybe it, it ended in a major key, because notice what David says here in verse 8. He says, but, but I am like, I am like an olive tree. And so here's what we see that's on full display. Confidence in the Lord is on full display. His contempt for this man's wickedness was on full display. What he did, the malicious use of his words, the senseless death of 85 servants of the Lord, uh, the division that this man caused, he, he showed his utter contempt for that. But then he turned around and said, but I'm going to tell you right now, my confidence is in the Lord. Let's sing about that. Now think about it. David's run-in with Dog happened in the tabernacle. And so most Bible students believe that maybe David saw a healthy green olive tree that was growing outside of the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle. And he says there, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. And, and, and he saw this tree, most likely, and he recognized that that tree was blessed, but it was even more blessed because of where it was planted. You know what, David, here in his life, at this season of his life, he's on the run, right? But what he says is, you know, my life is safe and secure, even in the midst of the wicked, because I know where I'm planted. And I like that. You know, the name of our church, because it was a church that was started on a road named Oakwood. But I, I, I like that name, Oakwood. We're not on, on a road, we're not on Oakwood Road or Oakwood Avenue or whatever it was, but we're not on that anymore, but I still like that word. Because you think about an oak tree. Oak tree takes some time to grow, doesn't it? But oak tree lives a long time. And what does an oak tree have? It has a big, giant root system. It allows it to be safe and secure in the ground. It, it, it's good, solid wood, and it's a, it's a, it's a good tree. And, and I see David say, man, I'm, I'm a good tree. i got a good root system. And, man, I'm planted in good soil. I'm planted in a good location. And, man, I know where my confidence is. I know where my safety and my security comes from. And so that leaves us with a good question tonight. How can a believer be like an olive tree that's planted in, in the house of God? How can that be so for us? And I want to point out a couple of things real quick. Number one, 
If you want to be planted like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord, you need to first of all have faith in God. I know that seems trite. I know it seems overly simplistic. I know so many people say, well, you know, I just need something deeper. Well, let me tell you something right now. The Bible just simply has a great verse that says that. Have faith in God. And that's what we need to have. Because the only way to face evil and injustice is to live in dependence and reliance and confidence in the Lord. Because so I don't have any problem telling you I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the political leaders of our country. I think we learned this past week. We don't have a ton of confidence in the economic structure of our country. I'm telling you, there's a, I, I certainly uh, am losing confidence in the educational system in our country more and more every day. It seems like we're getting crazier and crazier. I'll tell you what I do have confidence in. The Lord. I do. And I know we said this again and again when we studied the prophecy of Habakkuk, but we need to say it over and over and over again. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I've got confidence in the Lord. The Lord is worthy of my trust. Notice in verse 1, why is He worthy of our trust? Because He is perpetually good. And go ahead and put your trust in men. No man, no matter how good he is, is perpetually good. Come on now, every, look around this room. Every one of us has our good days and our bad days. Now I sure hope I have more good days than I have bad days. And I hope there's a measure of consistency in my life, but I'm not perpetually good. Oh, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But our God is perpetually good. I love that. His goodness endureth continually, the psalmist said. You know what that says about our God? Our God's love for us is volitional. It's not emotional. Listen, I love my wife. I really do. It may will be measured, married for 24 years. That's hard for me to believe. It seems like time's just gone by like that. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I, I don't mean this in any ugly way, but there have been days where I didn't really feel too much in love with her. And don't look at me so crazy because there's been days she's wanted to wring my neck. I, I promise you that. You say, how do you know? She told me. <laughs> See, a lot of times we measure our love in terms of emotion. Listen, I love my kids. I really do. I'm proud of my kids. I, love, I know they're not perfect kids, but I love my kids. But, but, but we've said this before in joking. We, we, we do know why some of the animal kingdom eat their own children. <laughs> I've wanted to wring some of their necks too. And I told them so. And I would imagine that there were times under their breath because they, they couldn't do much about it because of my authority stature that they probably wanted to wring my neck. Sometimes our love is very emotional. But I want you to know something about God. I'm not saying it's void of emotion. But God loves us. Listen to me, and this is not a bad thing. God loves us because He has promised to. And let me tell you something about God. You ready? God never breaks His promises. Never. And He's told us He would love us. And I know sometimes we in America, we say, but, but, but I want some emotion. Hey, what's wrong with just saying, you know what, I'm going to love you. Right now, you're not being very lovable. But I'm going to love you because I promised I was going to do it. You know, sometimes we discount that kind of love, and I don't think we should discount it. I think there's something to it. I'm glad when God wrote in the pages of His Word, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
He said, it doesn't matter how you feel or how anybody else feels. That's my word, and my word is bond. And I'm thankful for that tonight. God's love is loyal. When everybody turns against you, God's love remains steadfast. I think loyalty has become a very discounted, discounted virtue in our country. But God is loyal. God is loyal. And you know what? David needed that in this time in his life. His own father-in-law tried to kill him. There were times that even the people closest around him forsook him. This man, Dog, turned on him. He's thinking, who in the world can I trust? You know what he found? He found confidence in God. Here's another thing. You want to have confidence in the Lord? You want to be like a green olive tree planted in the house of God? Not only do you need to have faith in God, how about this? Give thanks to God. Did you notice that in our text? He said, I'll praise thee forever because thou hast done it. You know, thanksgiving to God is clear evidence of your trust in God. If you're living a life of worry, a life of doubt, a life of fear, you know that, what that is saying to everybody around you? You don't really trust God. And I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 9, he says, I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. Man, that's a great statement. I love that. The idea there is David's focus was not necessarily on what was done. It was on who did it. He said, thou hast done it. You did that. And, and, and I'm giving you thanks for that. See, trust in God's future faithfulness is rooted in, in our gratitude for what God has done in the past. I know we can't live in the past. We shouldn't live in the past. It's not healthy to live in the past, good or bad. But the past is there as a rudder to guide us through. And we look back on our past and we say, you know what? God's always taken care of me. God's always provided for me. God's always come through. God's always been true and he's been right and he's been good. You have done it and I know you will do it again. See, what God has already done is a resume of what he will do. And David was thankful for that. And you want to be a rooted and grounded tree? Learn how to be a grateful person. Learn how to see the good things that God has done. Let's just see thirdly. Show patience toward God. Look what he says at the end of verse 9. He says, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. A trusting and thankful heart is always marked by patience. Now, I, I, again, I know that most people aren't patient. I'm, I'm not typically patient. I know they say patience is a virtue. Well, I'm not sure it's a virtue I want to have, to be honest with you. I like living fast. I like having what I want when I want it. And in fact, I, I've learned in the Bible the only way to get patience is to go through trials, and I don't like problems. But you know, the truth of the matter is, is confidence in the Lord is often marked by waiting, by patience. When I was an assistant pastor in Missouri, we lived pretty close to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. We had a pretty uh, prolific military ministry, and because of that, um, I was able to go on post a few times. I went on a, a 5K march with a full bird colonel there and a, a, a bivouac uh, for the soldiers, and I got to participate in that. It was a pretty cool experience, and I, I, I kind of enjoyed that exposure to the military there and uh, the, the little bit of a friendship that uh, I was able to enjoy with this this uh, colonel, I mean, he's a full bird colonel. I mean, this guy, was, this guy was somebody. And he was working towards being a general. 
And I remember I was on post with him in that, that 5K bivouac march, and uh, I didn't know, man, I was like 23 years old. I'd never been in the military. And so I just like, you know, felt like I was somebody cool hanging out with this guy because he was something. I mean, a little short guy built like a fire plug, man. I mean, he, and, and he, was a, he was a colonel, man. I mean, when he walked in the room, he was used to people paying attention. And he, and he, and he lived like that. And I remember I was walking with him, and he had, and he had aides around him, you know, like d- different uh, assistants with him all the time. And I was walking with him, and we were heading somewhere to get this march started. And, and, and I walk fast. And I was a lot taller than him, so I, I, I walk real fast, and I got long legs, and, and I was just kind of moving quick, and, and, and I got ahead of him. And I remember one of his aides pulled me from behind. Kind of just pulled me on the back of the shirt, and he pulled me back. And I said, yeah? And, and he said, don't walk in front of the colonel. Man, the rest of my time with him, I was really paying attention. Like, I'd start getting going fast and be like, whoa, don't get in front of that guy. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen to you. I don't know if he was going to tell me to drop and give me 50. I don't know what was going to happen, but I wasn't going to get in front of the colonel. You know, that's a great lesson in life. You don't walk in front of the Lord. You go at his pace. You're going to go where he goes. You don't get ahead of him. You stay right next to it. And that's what David was saying. Listen, I, I'm not going to get ahead of you, Lord. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to let you lead me. I, I'm not going to run ahead of you and take matters into my own hand. I, I'm not going to do that. And here's what David is doing. This is the takeaway, and we'll end on this. David learned to focus on God and not focus on the problem person. You know what? We would be a lot better in life if we'd learn how to focus on the Lord instead of on the problem person. David pulled no punches. Boy, he starts off the psalm raring to go, calling Dog out, telling him exactly what he thinks. But he ends with this great message I want to be stable and secure. Because I'm planted in the right place. As close to the Lord as I can get Him. I trust in Him. I'm thankful to Him. I'm waiting on Him. And if we'll follow that very simple formula, it's going to help us to be stable and secure in our life. So let me ask you some questions tonight. Please, please. I know we're getting out of here, but pay attention to these questions. Question number one is this. And my words are chosen carefully, so please pay attention to it. Do you have a healthy contempt for wickedness? I want to say that again because of the key word there I try to emphasize is healthy. Do you have a healthy contempt for wickedness? You know, we have to be very careful. If we do not have a healthy contempt, we can easily become contemptuous towards people that we should be showing mercy and and compassion and witness to. We need to be careful about that. But if we do not show healthy contempt, then we are worn down by the culture in which we live in. And things that we should as believers have a problem with, we'll find ourselves not having a problem with them. Am I making sense to you? It bothers me that many Christian people have been so worn down by the world in which we live in 
that they look at things that are clearly scripturally wicked and they say, eh, you know. No, 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 no. There is no, eh, you know. No, it's wrong. And I have contempt for it. Y'all with me tonight? See, if we're not careful, we'll, be, we'll look at David and go, man, what's his problem? Cool it, Zippy, why are you so worked up? When really we have become worn down and become tolerant of things that we should never tolerate. Here's my second set of questions. Do you have a visible confidence in God? Again, I chose those words on purpose. Do you have a visible confidence in God? Remember that guy in the Bible said, come watch my zeal for the Lord. I mean, check this out. I want people to see confidence in the Lord in my life. Do you have that? Do I have that? Do you have the stability of an olive tree planted in the house of God? If your life is stable, let me ask you this. Do you recognize that your stability comes because of where you are planted? And, and, and if that's the case, then my final question is this. Where are you planted? Because I want to have a, a strong root system. But I want my root system to be planted in the Word of God. Be planted in the house of God. Be planted in the glory of God. That, that, I want to know that's where my strength and my stability comes from. So I hope we've learned from this psalm tonight. A little unusual, but it's given there for our instruction. A psalm of Maschil, a, a, a learning, instructing psalm. We ought to have contempt for things, not be ashamed of that. We ought to have confidence in the right places.